and welcome to Pushing Faders, the podcast where we take a look into the world of broadcast sound. I'm Chris Eckford, and on this week's show, I'm chatting to Robert Edwards about his 50 years working in TV. Robert is a multiple BAFTA award-winning sound engineer, as well as being part of the team that won the Oscar for Best Film Documentary in 1995 for the Anne Frank Remembered documentary. More recently, Robert was elected Fellow for the Institute of Professional Sound. The Institute of Professional Sound is definitely worth signing up to if you have an interest in sound, which I'm hoping if you listen to this podcast, then you do. Um, and finally, and most importantly, we find out how Robert turned this into a couple of boxes of wine every year. Have you got any guesses what that sound is? Oh, it's good, but it's not right. So thanks for joining me on Pushing Faders. So I don't actually think we've met, have we? I think I've spoke to you on a four-way a couple nope. of times. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, back, I think it was in Qatar was probably the last time I've chatted, chatted over a four-wire. So it's a weird industry to work in TV when you can sort of know these people but not actually have met them. It's quite quite interesting. Yep. Yes. So yeah, it's just want to get started and just like chat about how we were, got started working in TV and how, how we got to where you are now. Okay. Well, it's, uh, as they say, it's a long story. This is my 50th year in broadcasting. So obviously I was a child, I was going to say a child bride, but I was very, very young when I started. Um, my dad actually was a radio and TV engineer fixing radios and TVs back in the days of valve radios, valve sets, uh, and all that stuff. So the house has always been full of bits of um, electronic kit and stuff. And so as a sort of six, seven-year-old, I was allowed to change the uh, the valves, the 20 valves in a in a Bush TV 53 telly. Um, he always just said, be very careful about that valve there, that PY81, you know, it's got 2,000 volts on the end of it. So, you know, you don't want to touch that. Um, I can't imagine you letting your child play with a... Uh, the insides of a Val TV set these days, but hey, things have moved on. Anyway, so um, I sort of grew up in a household, you know, where electronics and stuff was always prevalent. And the same thing with music. And my mum bought me a piano when I was when I was three. Um, it was, you know, I think it was a derelict piano from a pub. Most of the notes worked. It wasn't particularly in tune. So I've always had music and I've always had uh, sort of electronics and stuff kicking around in my life. Um, the first sort of Saturday job when things were, those were a, those were a thing was um, I worked at a place called Hickey's in um, Reading, which is still there today. It was established in about 1864. I got a job in the classical department, which was downstairs. Um, that was because I played, by this stage, I was a percussionist. I was playing um, in the Reading Youth Orchestra, which is still going to this mm. day, um, the Barks Youth Orchestra and stuff. So I played percussion, timpani. Uh, but also I played at school, I played in a rock band, um, so playing drums in that. So that kept me with going with the music. Uh, one of the things that stimulated my interest in television was I got involved um, with a guy called, uh, or was called by a guy called uh, Gwyn Arch. Now he's the father of um, David Arch, who's the musical director on Strictly at the moment. Oh. I've not actually met David, but I must tell him the story <laughs> to me. But I, I worked basically his dad rang me because i was playing in a youth orchestra and they, it was it was a teacher training college he, he used to run concerts and things and he wrote a thing called creation jazz which was a bit there were several it was a sort of thing where they put stories about the bible into sort of jazz music different sections and stuff a bit like joseph and the amazing Tele- technicolor dreamcoat a sort of precursor to all of that and there was um uh the bbc said oh that'd be great we'll have it for a sunday morning service type thing on bbc or was any bbc that wasn't bbc one it was just bbc and um it was up in the london wall and it was a live tv production and i was probably about 
12 or 13 playing drums on this thing and I it sort of piqued my you know it gave me a bit of an interest into television could see what was going on in those microphones mm. and they put microphones on drums and all sorts of things so it sort of started my interest in you know television sound and I thought well you know what I'd like you really quite like to do that because it's a mixture of what you know a bit of electronics a bit of music maybe that might be a career for me so um I went um a bit like when you were discussing this with, with Ian Rosmer about what happened I, I went to um Kingston Poly which wasn't far from where Ian actually um went to school and stuff and um I went to Kingston Poly and was there and I did a applied physics um, and I got involved in the technical committee, so they were running concerts every night. So I was a bit like Ian. I was sort of doing some PAs and stuff in the you know in the evening, setting up a PA system. And while I was at uh, Kingston Poly, I sort of applied. I thought, you know, I, d I definitely want to do this sound thing for a living. And applied physics and music must be must be the right combination, surely. So uh, while I was still at Kingston, um, I applied to the BBC. And uh, I went for an interview. In fact, yeah, I went I went for an interview up in London and I did. At those days, they used to do all sorts of tests. And one of them was a voice test, because in case you ended up in radio, you had to be work on the World Service where the, the engineers would do the announcements in between. You know, this is right. the BBC service from for Saudi Arabia, whatever. Anyway, so had a voice test, all sorts of things. And they looked at my CV, and at that stage, as I say, I was doing my my um, I was at Kingston Poly doing this applied physics H and D, and um, they said, "Yeah, now you've got really good. Yeah, this is really you've got we've got exactly the right sort of combination of things you want." I thought, "Oh, that's great." Um, they said, "The one thing we need to give you is Nishihara um, colorblindness test." So they gave me Nishihara colorblindness test, and they said, "Oh no, there's a bit of a problem here. You've got red green color deficiency, with which ten percent ten percent of the uh, male population have." And they said, we can never, ever employ you. And I said, well, why, why is that? I said, I've got all the sound thing. They said, yeah, but if we had to move you away from um, radio or television, you know, they said, we, we use colour and that's one of our criteria. That is one of the things we have, you know. And then in those days, you know, literally thousands of people were applying for um, audio jobs with the BBC or television jobs. So I was rejected by the BBC and I was told, they said, don't bother to apply ever again um wow because that color deficiency is not going to go away and we can't employ you and I, was, I thought well there's obviously one way to skin this particular cat i'll um i'll apply to uh itv uh, i lived in so I, yeah i lived in teddington and uh just down the road was thames television they had studios at teddington uh and i thought well i'll apply to them so i applied to them same sort of procedure um they looked at the CV and said, yeah, absolutely fantastic. Yeah, really good. We definitely what we need. Um, and they said, we'll give you an itchy heart and color test. And I said, well, it's a bit pointless to me that because um, I'm a green color deficient. And they said, well, we model ourselves on the BBC here in ITV. They said, um, I'm afraid we won't ever be able to employ you. So I thought, no. So similar, similar thing happened. Um, I got invited for an interview in Granada. Same thing. Uh, yep. Great CV. Nope. Sorry. We like the BBC. We like to model ourselves on the BBC. It's a criteria we use. No colour blind. Colour blind. Forget forget broadcasting as a career. So um, I didn't give up. I carried on doing this. Mm. I actually then applied to uh, Southern Television, who used to hold the franchise for the South of England, based in Southampton. Went down there and saw a very nice chap called Cyril Vine, um, who interviewed me. And I said, "Look, before we start, I don't want to waste your time and my time." But I said, "But I've got a red green color deficiency." I said, "I don't think it should matter, but it's a criteria that everybody else tells me that I've got to, I've got to meet this." And they said, uh, "He said, no." He said, 
it's you know you you can read a score you've played in classical music we do quite a lot of music here you know at the very least even if we don't employ your sound technician there's some place we could find you with your with your skill set so he said what we'll do um and we'll we'll, we'll employ you for on a three-month contract and he said basically it'll be a probation period and he said after the end of the three months he said if we find this kind of thing is an issue then he said we'll have to part company so i trundled off down to southampton and uh, started at Southern TV. That was in 1974. Um, and at that stage, ITV really didn't have any sort of formal training scheme. It had lots of very uh, enthusiastic people, quite a lot of which, there was a couple of people that were ex-BBC, but there was a couple of people that were ex-Air Force, all sorts of people that were, that were doing sound in their sound department. But the one thing that they did have was they were doing everything because they were a regional ITV company at that stage. They were doing, um, they were doing live shows. They were doing recorded shows. They were doing music. They were doing drama. They were doing kids drama. They were doing film. They were doing outside broadcasts. Basically, I got exposed to the whole gamut of what television could be. And in a way, because it was a regional ITV company, I'm not saying you know the programs didn't matter, but but the uh, the, the actual um, ethic down there was you know they wanted to make it the best they could cyril who was as i say the guy that employed me he made sure that they had good sound desks so all the sound desks down there were all neve mm. all the microphones were neumann microphones so the actual infrastructure there was fantastic to to learn on to practice on um we did live news you know it's a fantastic grounding so i i absolutely i'll you know owe a great debt to the, you know what i learned there i mean a lot of it was learning by what I wouldn't do because I could see a lot of supervisors making a lot of what I could see were strange choices mm. about microphones and stuff. And we was, used to do things, I don't know if you've seen them, you know, things like run around kids game shows. And there were a group of us who were quite young there. They'd taken on a few trainees. And so we were like the, 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 the defining force in terms of the, every time a new show come up we would try and offer them solutions you know they had on run around there was a run-up noise and there was buzzers and all mm. sorts of things which the old supervisors just you know weren't capable of uh, or didn't didn't really think outside the box about how how they would do stuff mm. so given a lot of opportunity there the, and one particular series i worked on i think i mean it, it sounds i mean if it were on channel four now you could imagine what the what the program would be about but then the title was come sunday <laughs> And um, this this show was actually a religious, the opposite end of the spectrum. It was a religious uh, show, but it was based on re readings of, of music and um, poetry and religious stuff. And it was recorded on location, entirely on location, uh, around the south of England. A guy called Andrew, Andrew Cruikshank, who was a famous actor at the time, who played Dr. Finley, uh, was the presenter. But the interesting about it, thing about it, from my point of view, it was a lot of music. And the supervisor that was assigned to do the show had no musical background. So there was a sound supervisor there and a lot of music, which he wasn't particularly interested in doing. So I said, as his, you know, psychic trainee slash sound assistant, um, I said, well, look, I'll do the music bit. You just do the you know the, the singing bit or the whatever around it mm. I'll, I'll mix the bands and stuff so for basically two years i was able to do um i had things like the bournemouth symphony orchestra would do a piece and we would record it on location um the musical director we had for the second series i did was john dankworth now if you look him up people may or may or not have heard of him but he's a very famous jazz um musician and his wife is cleo lane the singer and uh so we had 
a, a, the whole spectrum of music you mm. know one week we'd be doing as i say him jazz the next week we did we had barbara dixon we had a live band in a cathedral trying to record it straight to straight to two track we had i think we did get up to two track but then we ended up bouncing it all down into mono and i so i just had a ball there mm. you know um doing music and things like that so that was southern television in 1970 that was for me started in 74 then on the 31st of, of um december in uh, 92 um tvs were to become the um broadcaster for the south and southeast of england so southern tv had lost the franchise mm. um and at that time uh the guys at uh, quite a lot of the southern tv guys you know that they said well we're going to build a studio in maystone and we'd like some people to go go down there and run that and uh, who's who wants to go to maystone well at that stage i was then that was probably 10 years on i was now in my you know early 30s mm. so i put my hand up and i was the only one who put the hand up and they said fine okay so i, I had a, again i had an interview and so six months before southern tv uh shut down stopped transmitting i was seconded to tvs who became the new incoming broadcaster and got involved in the planning of the maidstone studios which is still still operating to this day so i was but i was the only sound person so basically they gave me the budget i can't remember it was probably close to a million pounds then which is a lot of money mm. uh, and told to build what i wanted uh, employ who i wanted and the only caveat was a bit like i'd have with cyril and the three months is look if it doesn't work you'll be sacked so <laughs> It was fine uh and at that stage um tvam was starting up and there were a lot of people employed by tvam so there was a there wasn't a big surge of people wanting to go and work in maidstone so essentially we took on an awful lot of trainees well i took on a lot of trainees uh and looked around for some some hired hands and helps to uh, other supervisors that might be in, in the industry that didn't mind working in maidstone and ian rosam who you interviewed last week or the week um, previously was um was one of those who joined uh the department at that time so tvs had for 10 years it uh, ran the, the franchise for the television for the south and southeast of england mm. um we had the youngest sound department in itv at that stage in maidstone and so therefore we were given all the interesting projects as i would describe them um and again it was a it was across the board we would do outside broadcasts film dubbing news um all the same sort of things we've done at Southern, only only this time TVS had aspirations to be a, a bigger bigger company than um, Southern were. So they were vying to get some network shows. Um, one of them was um, Summertime Special, um, which you've uh, it's a bit, a bit like Seaside. So the BBC had a show called Seaside Special. We had ITV decided to have one called Summertime Special, and uh, TVS won the rights to make that for the network, which was quite an unusual thing. Uh, and that was being based in Bournemouth, and that was uh, a light entertainment show with live orchestra, um, all the stars of the day. I mean, the first show had Randy Crawford was the was the singer. As I say, it was Alan Ainsworth his orchestra. We'd had you know we had a strings room separately built in the in the Bournemouth International Conference Centre. Ian did did the front of house PA, and I did the broadcast mix. So we did series, a few series of that, and they used to call it LWT by the Sea because it was London Weekend that would normally be doing those shows. But um, as I say, Southern won them, so there was a lot of their producers and people. So there was a lot of good good contacts there, um, and that got us got me into doing serious light entertainment things. Um, one of the other shows uh, we made at the time uh was catchphrase 
and uh, that's still running on ITV. God knows how many series yeah, there yeah. are now. Um, and as my kids always say, the most the thing that I'm probably going to long after I've passed away, the thing I'm most famous for um, is I invented the catchphrase budget buzzing noise. Mm. So um, and that still uh, generates a few hundred pounds a year in <laughs> PRS money. So it buys me a few couple of boxes of wine a year um as i say it's still being used so not many so one of those things not many people know that uh, tvs lost their franchise um and i did uh, i stayed on ian and i both of us um stayed on pretty much the bitter end they wanted to sort of get rid of us because obviously there were pension things hanging on and i was the head of sound for the for tvs and ian was deputy and it was around that time that um sky I think well, Sky itself started, I think, in 89. I think the Sky Sports started in 91. And we, we were talking about TBS losing its franchise. We heard about it in 92. Mm. They were then thinking about how they were going to do their um, take on the, the football contracts, which they'd won from, or from the BBC, really, and, and ITV. I mean, they used to show, I think it was something like 15 matches a year. Uh, and it was when it was at, only at that stage when Sky Sports started under Vic, Vic Wakeling, mm. and he knew of us. But because I'd done a lot of light entertainment programs, including catchphrase, with, with somebody called Pat Mordecai, who sadly is no longer with us, her husband, um, Tony Mills, became um, the lead director on the Premier League. And mm. she knew that, you know, I'd done a lot of stuff, and they knew that I, you know, I'd, I've got a, I've got a, a, a foot in both the door of. Um, sport and and music and light entertainment and stuff and they thought that might be a good combination if they were going to launch a new sports service it's something that we could maybe give them some tips or mm. some pointers to actually make how to make it sound different and how to make it sound better so we sort of started uh, an unofficial relationship with sky sports while we were still at tbs and the first game um i think it was on the 16th of august in 92 um i mixed it tony mills was directing so Ian and i shared the shared that um first um, few months of of skies. Had you um, done much football um, before? We done um, we done some football um, because we were part of the pool because TVS was part of the pool. We had OB trucks, mm. so we would do Southampton, we'd do Gillingham, but it, we certainly weren't doing Man United or Chelsea no, because no. in those days they were being done by the London companies or the, or Granada or something. So. Um, but we were discussing with them, actually, it wasn't very tricky to do football back in those days because it was a very simple setup. The, there would be uh, certainly be a lip mic for the commentator and there might be a spare for that. There would be a couple of mics up on the boat, one pointing to the left, one pointing to the right to pick up the crowd. There'd have been a mic on camera three. Um, they would, to get a replay camera, because replay cameras were expensive and they would have to send the pictures for slow-mo purposes to the one slow-mo machine that was based in London. There was occasionally a behind-the-goal camera. Mm. So it was basically four, four, you know, three or four camera coverage. Mm. Uh, so it was actually quite easy to think about it from our point of view as to what would you do to make it sound a bit more a bit more interesting. And I mean, the simple thing we did was literally to double the number of microphones, more than double the number of microphones yeah. that were covering the actual action on the pitch, as you know, and, and the standard has gone up since then. And we, we were behind that, that, that change to making the sport a bit more accessible in terms of what you were hearing about mm. how engaged you were and a bit more, even though it's mono, dare I mutter the word immersive, you know, you would feel that you're actually much, much closer to the action. Mm. We introduced stuff that we'd done on kids' shows. We used to do a thing called Number 73, which was a live kids' show, Saturday mornings. Um, 
where you know at old kids shows you have lots of sound effects and stuff and we said well why don't we add the why don't we every time there's a replay why don't we add a, a noise to that why do we add a whoosh to that and so that's how the sky whoosh sound and, uh, and graphics in general in television started because nobody else was doing it at that stage and we brought that to sky and sky just loved all of those things and mm. um, we gradually increased it until it's now to the ridiculous extent that you, you can't <laughs> no piece of graphics on television is allowed to move without there being some sort of sound effect um so going so we so so those um early days in the 90s you know we were doing um the, the sort of sport at the weekend and doing our tvs jobs in the daytime mm. uh, or in the weekdays rather um and um my first bafta nomination if i can talk about that was in 1991 which was still in the tvs days um I got a BAFTA nomination for doing Mahler's Eighth Symphony Live. So I was still convinced that I was going to become, you know, just going to carry on doing that for a long period of time. So Mahler's Eighth Symphony Live is called the Symphony of a Thousand, and it was done, I did it live for Channel 4, and it was the first ever stereo broadcast that Channel 4 did. And in fact, I'm responsible for the viewers in Salisbury having stereo on their transmitters a lot earlier because I said, well, I need an off-air receiver. And they said, well, the local transmitter's not due to go for three and a half years. It's not going to have NICAM <laughs> signals available. And I said, well, I've got to have it off-air. So they modified the local um, transmitter at Salisbury so that I could hear it off-air. Yeah. Um, so I got a nomination for that. And then the following year in 92, just, just before uh, in TVS's sort of last dying days, I did um, a concert outside Salisbury Cathedral, which was organised um, for the restoration of the Spire Fund. And it was called Symphony for the Spire. Uh, and it was a weird thing that it was, I was live onto Radio 2 doing a mix, uh, but it was for broadcast on the Sunday by ITV. So it was a really funny hybrid mm. job. Um, and uh yeah i mean security was very tight it was a royal thing diana was there and everything it was still in, you know in those days and uh, i won a bafta for that so that was the first bafta i got was for it was called the um a royal gala so that was in 1992 as i say i sort of actually got the award after tvs had, had shut mm. because the award ceremony wasn't till the following following may um a long, I'm rattling on here. Tell me to stop if it's... <laughs> no, no, it's all good. It's all off. good. The other thing, weird thing I was going okay. to sort of jump back to, which was quite early on, what you were saying was, if you, I, was just, I, I was shocked where you, you sort of was knocked back on a couple of jobs for you know, being colourblind, which it wouldn't happen nowadays, that would it? I don't know. Um, it, I mean, it's the interesting this, thing about... The, I was saying, in, in a sound role, I mean, obviously, you, it, it, you couldn't imagine needing, apart from the LEDs, I guess. Other than that, it's not, you know, it's not something I would ever imagine getting knocked back for, especially these days. Yeah, I mean, it it was a thing to do with the, with the color of the red and green meter needles mm. for stereo, because mm. that was the main criteria. I I said, you know, I can't tell the difference between left and right on those meters, mm. uh, but I do have ears. Yeah, yeah. funny enough, that one's funnily enough situated on the left and one's situated <laughs> on the right. There's a lot of interesting things about being colorblind and doing this job. Is that I've never ever had an issue, or have had an issue with color in a way that's impacted on the job. I mean, for instance, on Cowrec consoles. I just never knew that when you press the line and the mic button, it changed colour. Yeah. When I pressed it, yeah. I knew when it was down, it was it was line, and when you, it was up, it was mic. Mm. But it was only fairly recently that somebody said, "Oh yeah, no, it used to change colour." Mm. Early on at, in TVS, I bought Chromatech meters, which are meters that you burn into the picture left and right, mm. so I could physically see a PPM yeah. on the screen. Yeah, I guess if you were a Rax engineer, then it, it would be a tricky. Uh, yeah, but the 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 beautiful the beautiful irony was when the BBC 
approached me to do um, to be the head of sound for Eurovision mm. last year. I mean, I was able to say down. It was a really good moment saying. Strictly speaking, you shouldn't be employing me on this job <laughs> because of my colour deficiency. You know, and it's, there's a sort of good poetic justice about yeah. the, the full circle. It's to, to, it took 50 years for them to admit that actually maybe it didn't make a difference and perhaps they did need my skill set. But uh, And just going back briefly yeah. to Sky Football, did you have much of a sort of idea of what you wanted to do with adding adding extra mics it was just obvious that you just needed to feel a bit more of the grit and the dirt there were no trial games everything was live onto air and, mm. it, and what worked and what what worked and what didn't work i mean the first as as i think ian alluded to the first games were mono anyway mm. and then we rapidly went through a stereo phase rapidly straight onto a 5.1 stage yeah. and all of those the the grammar of how we would do that we we set back then you know as to how it's it, pretty much it's it's covered now because of our involvement with sky we started to talk to a new company that just arrived which was um hbs mm. who had just won um the the rights to be the host broadcaster for for the um fifa world cup um so that was to uh, we basically got involved in them about the, in the year 2000 uh and um just said the same sort of things you know you're going to obviously have increased camera coverage we can offer you a better w way of you know doing what had been the standard for up until that point and so we then were ian and i were then in charge of the um fifa world cup for 2002 which was split between korea and japan so mm. that in itself was quite an interesting challenge yeah. and it was in before again before the days of a lot of computerization or a lot of routers and stuff so the four wires although we weren't involved in the four wires and stuff but the, literally the patching up of the four wires each day there was a room with about 20 people that were plugging jack cords some of them yeah. as long as you know five or six meters long to reach different parts of the bay to connect and they were having to reconnect on a daily basis or so there was nothing like we're going to connect that to that or it was it was pretty old school in terms of you know signals we could get back from the stadiums and stuff but ian and i even at that point at 2002 we said to hbs we've got to think beyond stereo you've got to think about you know immersive audio in films was obviously you know thing mm -hmm. not immersive but you know 5.1 so we did some tests even in korea and japan we built a 5.1 in the in the master control area we built a 5.1 run rig 5.1 rig uh in that control room and demonstrated to them, you know, what you could have with a bit of rear mm. in the room. So when it came to 2006 in Germany, it was a no brainer really as, you know, we'd, we'd push things on and the Germans became more active within HBS at that stage because they were doing it. It was going to be their world cup. You know, yeah. that's when Lavo got involved. We, I mean, so Ian and I did our master control mixing of the 5.1 on a, on a Sony desk, you know, Sony had mm. built a desk at that stage, which could do 5.1. Um, but then Lavo got involved in 96, uh, and you know, it made it all so much easier because all of a sudden there was a manufacturer that was Germany based that had a real vested interest yeah. in trying to, trying to bring their products to, to market and uh, and all of that so again that the result about their involvement in the world cup is history from 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 2000 um from yeah 2006 onwards yeah it's like the, the few times um, i get a chance to work on a lava for any period of time has been at the, the big tournaments i've done <laughs> it's otherwise a dip in and out of like yes. ev every couple of months might get a chance but yeah two two weeks on a lava or, th or three weeks on a lava was quite a learning experience and it's the same with me i mean um the 
uh, Olympics uh, are, are similarly. I mean, we got involved in the Olympics uh, in 2012. We were Ian and I were doing what we would do for HBS in the master control area because OBS suddenly realised that they needed some sort of people that were sound based mm. or sound knowledge from quality control point of view. So we said, okay, well, we'll do what we do for HBS in the quality control area. It's a bit more complicated with OBS of the Olympic, who are OBS. Um, it's a little bit more complicated. Their management structure, our relationship with them was at those in those days um, wasn't quite as close as it was with us with HBS. Mm. But nevertheless, after 2012, we made some suggestions which um, were then reflected. And in 2016, I got involved with the opening and closing ceremonies um, to the point that I was. I ended up mixing the opening and closing ceremonies in Brazil. Um, 2018 i then did pyeongchang and then 2020 which 2021 was um i did tokyo opening closing ceremonies mm -hmm. same thing with beijing uh and i'll be uh doing paris next next summer going back to something you mentioned earlier you was the eurovision song contest uh head of audio this year right so from um the time I went freelance, I'd still kept a big old hand in, although we were doing sport the weekend, I still kept a big hand in what was going on uh, in light entertainment yeah. because I still felt that sport was, I could, sport was relatively easy. Yeah. Um, there was a lot of it. And so I could have been sucked into that world uh, a lot and it's just been a full-time uh, sports mixer. Mm. But I didn't really want to do that uh, from my own peace of mind because I felt that people that just did sport, just did sport and were a little bit blinkered as to what else, you know, new technologies, new techniques, maybe part of it, but they weren't necessarily going to stretch the, stretch the brain. Mm. Uh, 1996, I did the Royal Variety Show um, with some people there that I knew. Um, in 2001, um, I had a phone call from uh, some of the producers that I'd worked with back in the old summertime special days. And they said, we, you know, we're at Thames now. Uh, we've got this idea of a pop show where we audition people and we get people um, that aren't really known and give them a recording contract. And they said, you know, was I interested in, in being involved in that? And I said, yeah, sure, absolutely. Um, and that was Pop Idol. So um, I was in on the ground floor of that. They, uh, some, as I said, the producers that I knew from the days of doing Summertime Special under, under TVS, as I say, had moved into Thames. Uh, and they had this great idea, as I say, to bring people that weren't known and suddenly fast track them into a, uh, a course where they would, by the end of five, six, seven, maybe 10 weeks, suddenly become number one selling pop stars. Um, and the first series was 2001. It went across the Christmas as well. So it actually finished in 2002. And that was the um, show that brought, brought us Will Young and obviously mm -hmm. all the success that he's had. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then there was another series in 2003 with uh, Michelle McManus, who's not heard of so much. No. Um, and those shows were done at Teddington Studios where I'd done some light entertainment in that period. I'd done some uh, things with Brian Connolly there. Um, we did some live shows. Pop Idol started off as a live show at Teddington, which were the heats. And then we went into Fountain Studios uh, to do the live shows. Um, and they were very successful. I mean, they were big news at the time. Mm. 
and um they were totally live you know people say oh we must use auto-tuning and miming all that stuff but it was all no auto-tune it was, it was what you see is what you get there was live bands live music sort of right down my runway really and then um had a call because um simon cowell had got uh this new idea based on a similar similar thing that obviously there was litigation as about how close it was but we then started um on the 4th of september the 2004 the first x factor series and i stayed with that for i think it was 14 14 series i did um every live show i didn't do any of the auditions mm. but i did every live show so for sort of those 14 years every every while it was on the air i was doing um lots of live saturdays so yeah. that meant i couldn't do any live saturday football so ian took the took the reins on the saturday football at that stage um and along with that along with doing x factor for that period of time i also did um britain's got talent started up mm. Um, and Britain's Got Talent ran and is still running. I think that started in 2008. I think that's on something like 20, 23 we're in now. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's about 15 years, yeah. 16 years of, of doing that. And again, I did all the live. I've done every single live show that that show's done. I've done again, I don't get involved in the auditions. So I've still kept, I'm, I'm a dinosaur. You're talking to a dinosaur here because there are not many people left that still do have that range of doing uh, such a broad selection of programs. So I would argue that, yeah, I might, you know, it, it, it's, I'm not a sports specialist, but I can bring a lot of the LE things to it, which is yeah. why, again, we brought the, the noises and stuff in and vice versa. There are things in sport, you know, the, the, the speed and the, how you have to operate in sport is very close to how you align yourself when you're doing news and stuff. You know, being able to juggle a news script is a fantastic skill to have mm. because um, things are always changing. and You've got to think ahead. Mm. And one of the things I've always tried to do is to try to be as current as possible. When we were at TVS, I bought the world's first audio file, um, which was uh, developed by AMS, who were up in uh, Burnley, and that was for catchphrase. Mm. We um, they they started they'd started an advertising company. They thought they were going to build a dubbing machine, and I said, "Well, if this is random access, can't we write a program where we can access like a jukebox, all the various sound and music that we'd have in the machine? Because every every time the catchphrase has an animation, it's supposed to have a different piece of music." The first demonstration I had of the audio file, which because was supposed to be able to do a minimum of twenty seconds of music continuously, I, I, they would they could play me back two seconds of audio. <laughs> Uh, because the machine had crashed that morning or something <laughs> so we had the audio file and then we we had um we got into samplers which is how we got into the sky washers really yeah. we, you know we, we small low-scale sampling was became a thing uh, and we embraced all of that yeah so i've always tried to keep keep abreast of what what current what is currently good good to be across in terms of you know moving the technology forward and so, so what, what would you think would be the most uh important to yourself advancement in technology um i think things like i mean i i went on air with the very first um uh, Calric apollo desk mm -hmm. that was in development for a few years uh and fountain because of the x factor and the number of sources i had on it they thought it would be great if they could um have a bigger desk i thought it'd be great if they could have a bigger desk they thought it'd be good to have a bigger desk and cowrick at that stage were going from they had assignable consoles they had one that i'd used at teddington um but it was it was using to you know software that was 
uh, DOS based, mm. you know, fairly clunky. It would recall nothing very much. Um, and so therefore, when the Apollo concept came, the Carrick Apollo concept came up and they presented me with, it was literally bits of paper on a very, very large desk yeah. with, you know, hand-drawn strips, which we moved around. Um, getting that to actually come to a, to be a, a reliable broadcast desk was a great journey for them and me. Mm. I mean, on the very first X Factor, we weren't on air, I had the sections of each part of the manufacturing process in the building right and i had four of them I mean, actually in the control room uh on the night of the first broadcast because they were absolutely bricking it as to what you know how the desk was going to mm. perform whether i go because there's no hiding place as you know in a, in a live um two and a half hour broadcast there's no hiding place if this desk had yeah, yeah. dropped off the air for whatever reason there's no so again we had we had a bit of you know, when the desk turned up, there was quite a lot of bugs. It was quite buggy. Um, uh, yeah, we had, well, there was one. Yeah, there was just, there was just lots of things. I mean, but but the bugs we would have, we would write down, and then overnight, I'd send them at the end of the day. I'd send the list of the bugs we'd found in the software, mm. and overnight in the factory, they'd rewrite whatever bit of the code it was that needed doing and send it down to. So the next morning when we rehearsed, we had another set of fixed bugs yeah, and then we discovered a whole set of <laughs> other unfixed bugs so that sort of that sort of development you know that was quite a big um a big thing for you know for the industry for those those sort of desks mm. where freely assignable um multi-flexible you know not not being really challenged by the resources so much in the, you know, the amount of eq the amount of compression you could have yeah although there were restrictions early, early doors about all of those things uh, that the, the ability to actually have delays or, or put stuff in uh is is uh, you, you know you can't well, you can only remember what it was like when you just had none of that and think you know that doing this show today would be virtually impossible yeah. you could do it but it'd be, it could be a different show so um yeah it's been interesting to see to see those sort of things i'm, a, I'm going over to calrec in a couple of days to, to chat with one of their designers uh, for the for the podcast yeah oh well, that'd be that'll be well worth they're they're great guys i mean they and their heart is in, in in the sound of it as well as much as anything else you know well that's the one thing we never ever talk about anymore is what does the desk really sound like because there is so you know we're now just talking you know minuscule differences in it's, it's really all about the operating system of desks as to how comfortable you are with it, how quickly you can access something you really want to access i mean i still use a lot of layers when i'm doing britain's got talent or x factor you know, but i've I always in my head i always keep layer six is where i'll keep all my all my master failures yeah. so for whatever job i'm doing i always put you know put all my aux masters on one layer and that and layer six is where i go to layer four is where i have all my emergency backup stuff so if something's going tits up i've always got somewhere layer four i can always find yeah. all the bits to to dig myself out of whatever trouble we might be going into you know but and things like dante have made a huge difference as well i've got because i'm old school i still like to have uh, for one of an expression a knob you know to actually grab hold of so when i'm doing x factor i'll have a i've got a rack of reverb machines i've got you know i've got some lexicons i've got bricasti um, you know a whole range of outboard gear and a load of neve limited compressors the old school 33609s um and it used to take me half a day to connect those all up into aes's mm. or analog in and out and blah 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 but now i've got a rack which it all goes into um a, 
a Dante converter on the top of the rack. I turn up, literally 10 seconds later, I yeah. plug the Cat5 cable in and all these devices are now on my network and I can access them, put them where I want. And it's, again, that sort of IP, that's really IP working completely in our favour, yeah. completely saving time, but giving, giving me still the ability to have physical controls yeah it's, it, 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 i think dante for me was one of the biggest jumps because it, it is so just flexible yeah. and you can you know layer and layer and layer everything up that you put on there so back to eurovision um eurovision has its roots for me in the olympics um because i mix the as i said i've done i've done all the world cups since 2002 and i've done the olympics since well, 2012, but actually being mixing 2016 onwards. Um, I've worked with some interesting, very, I mean, you do work with the best of the best in the Olympics in terms of, and the same thing on the, on the, on the World Cups, you know, the, the people that are there, they, they know their stuff. Nobody's there for a free ride because it's also critical and it's also mission critical. Uh, and I was working with some great um, Portuguese guys there and um, had a good, you know, good relationship with them. We were working day in, day out. Anyway, in 2018, Portugal won the uh, Eurovision Song Contest. And uh, Daniel Beckerman and, uh, was the MD of uh, the company that won effectively the, the sound uh, head of sound role because each country has to appoint its own head of sound. And he rang me uh, and said, um, look, we've got nobody that really can do the broadcast sound mix for this show. We can do the we can do the PA, we can do all the foldback, we can do all the infrastructure, but we really need somebody that can actually just mix the show. So I said, yep, yeah, I'll come and do that. Um, and that was just right again, right down my runway. I didn't have to think about the infrastructure. I did have to think about the fact it was a Lavo desk, but um, uh, essentially I mixed the whole show from one truck. So it was radio, television, 5.1 down mixed into stereo, all the music, all the chats, mm. absolutely everything um, out of one truck. There was a mirror truck um, where, you know, we'd have to go if it if it collapsed, yeah. if, if, if the desk conked out or whatever. But so I actually had a great time because I didn't, I didn't, although I had the responsibility of doing all the mixing and doing the show, I wasn't having to worry about the, you know, all the politics that goes on on that sort of show. I was kept, kept away from it. Um, and uh, yeah, so I took a small team of um, a couple of my trusted Brits, um, Jane Scott, who's been my grandma for over 30 years. She came and sad Steve Crisp, who sadly is no longer with us, used to do the football for a while. He uh, he took Ian's place. Ian fell off his bike and broke his wrist and collarbone. So he was supposed to do a job where uh, they were interfacing with all the delegations. So that after the rehearsals, they would go and talk about how the sound was and pass on them the notes. Anyway, Steve Crisp, as I say, we didn't realise until I asked him that it was his um, it was his life's ambition to work on Eurovision. Right. So he came over, but it was it was it ended up as being sadly the last pretty much the last right. time because he you know he died shortly shortly after there was cancer rather tragically. Yeah, I, I, I did work with Steve a couple of times. Yeah, yeah, he's a great guy. Um, so two thousand that was two thousand eighteen. So when um, the UK and the Ukraines decided that. Uh, it wasn't safe to do it in in uh, Kiev. They decided that the BBC would do it, and the BBC 
again, people that I'd worked with on other singing shows and some other people had heard that I'd done it in Portugal. They said, okay, you sound like the best person to be able to organise this. And God bless the BBC, they just left me get, to get on with it. Um, so I was seconded. Although I'm freelance, I was still doing my other work. I would do probably two or three days a week initially at BBC Television Centre mm -hmm. organising it. But I, this time I had to deal with all building the infrastructure uh, and all the politics that goes on with it. Yeah. But the good news was um, I was the only one in the UK probably at that time that had actually done the Eurovision Song Contest in living memory. So I had a complete understanding of what was needed. So it was just a question then of of finding, getting the right team to uh, to actually deliver it. And uh, I used a combination of people that I, I constantly were people, as I said to you, that I'd worked with on, uh, uh, on Eurovision or I'd worked with on X Factor mm. or Britain's Got Talent. And I uh, also um, Richard Silito uh, was um, in charge of Strictly and he'd got a team there. Um, so... Again, it was the best of the best, really, yeah. working for the BBC. I had 50, in the end, it was 50, 50 sound technicians on the job doing all their various roles. Um, and yeah, it was it was, a, it was a great experience. And as I said, I, I was lucky I could sort of pass all this knowledge on yeah. that I'd had. Um, and yeah, ticked a lot of good boxes. Um, we did all the testing for, the countries all try and cheat, you know, with their backing tracks, try to sneak vocals in their front centre. Yeah. So, and I knew this from, from when I'd done it in Portugal. So, um, I took, we took all the, all the tracks to Abbey Road and spent a few days there just going through all of the various stems for all the countries, just checking what they had and what they didn't have provided. I guess that's a quite a tricky, um, thing with everybody's management for each uh, performer's got, you know, their own little band of people that are going to be telling you what you need to do to make them sound good. Oh, absolutely. They Each country take it incredibly seriously. I mean, far more, far seri more seriously than obviously we have in the past, but they are all intent on making a three-minute pop video to the highest mm. standards. And the gap between songs is 40 seconds. So mm. the whole stage, whole lighting, everything, sound, we all have to, within those 40 seconds, reconfigure to be ready uh, to do the next song in the best pos way possible. And every country sends a delegation and all that delegation are focusing on are their three minutes. Yeah. So there's a whole, um, you know, the, the, the level of inspection is, is, incredibly, is, in, is incredibly tight as to what goes on, which is why they, it's a, it's a, Everybody has to have exactly the same amount of time to rehearse. Everybody has a prescribed amount of time to go and watch it in a viewing room after the rehearsal. Um, from our point of view, everything runs from a Pro Tools rig, which we have uh, in Monitor World. In fact, we had to have three. We have to have three as a backup, um, and that generates time code, show code, um, which runs each one of those songs, which all have a unique start time code, uh, and that triggers all the lighting. It triggers all the stage moves. The, the moves of the set it also triggers the vision mixer all the vision cuts during the songs are automatically fed or derived from the time code using th uh, a thing called qpilot yeah. um yeah and obviously all the audio comes from from not the live singing the like the singing all has to be genuinely live um mm. And obviously, there's a vast infrastructure to make all of that work. Which, on this occasion, we used I used Brit Row uh, to provide all of that stuff. I mean, they do the Brits and stuff, so they're used to that sort of level yeah. of playback and things. Um, but radio mics, you know, we we were given 
because I had early meetings with Ofcom that, you know, basically we were given the whole spectrum that surrounded Liverpool and we were allowed to have whatever we wanted in that in that bit of the spectrum um, in terms of radio mic frequencies and stuff. And there was a lot, a lot I can imagine there was a lot, there was a lot happening there. Yeah, it's funny, I just mentioning the radio mic thing, I was doing a um, Sky Football at Tranmere the, the day of the day of the Eurovision Song Contest and we couldn't have any radio mic frequencies. Yeah. <laughs> which was quite funny so it, the ex explanation to uh, I can't remember who was directing it now from Sky was like oh you know <clears throat> we've uh, we can't have it because of Eurovision and like yeah but it's miles away I was like yeah but I think they've taken up the whole of Liverpool <laughs> yes yeah because there were a lot of event events going on uh, and we did tests obviously I mean and, and Tranya tra you know it was it was like well what, what's you know how far away is that and there was obviously there are games I think there was a game either at Everton or Liverpool anyway it's also at the same time um but there was there was a transmission that comes across the water from that side of the river as well which um yeah they were talking about they're going to reduce the power for the viewers would they notice and all of that stuff we, in the end that didn't happen but uh, it was it was we were given carte blanche and we had to then manage that spectrum mm. so it was it was yeah it was epic in so many ways but yeah it was, all happened and nothing majorly wrong happened majorly in a bad way so it was good i, I don't tend to do much uh, le work but i somehow was roped in to do the handover ceremony um that, that they put on bbc2 which was was it January or February, something like that. It's that they originally wanted a supervisor from Liverpool, but they couldn't find one, so they went sort of north west. Couldn't find one, so it became just the north. <laughs> so that's why. So I was roped, I was roped into doing this, and yeah. uh, I was like, well, I don't don't have much LE experience, but like, well, it's just it's just two two radio mics, Couple of presenters, two yeah. presenters, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then it went from two radio mics. It's four radio mics now. We've got two. We've got two, uh, the mayors of each town speaking. <laughs> All right, that's fine. On the a couple of days before, it was then twelve radio mics, and then it was like, oh, there's, there's no grams, and then it was like grams every thirty seconds, but with no grams up. And I was like, yeah, this was a half hour show that was two radio mics, yep. and I first got yep. booked for it. And I don't really yep. do Ellie very often, so this was a yeah, quite quite a quite a baptism for me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is, you know, the thing, about, as you know, about sound in television is that nobody understands sound apart from the sound people. So that's a good and a bad thing. Yeah. And on light entertainment, it's definitely not a good thing because they don't have, I mean, you just have to cope with it, mm. but it's just, you do have to, you know, see where this, these sort of things can, uh, can run to in terms yeah. of, the, they're never as simple as they, oh, it's just somebody going over to the pub. Yeah, but who are they going to talk to? Do, what do you want to hear? Do you want to talk to the person that's there? Is there a mix minus required? Are they, we play music to the pub. Is the you know, is the pub playing music to us? You know, and then it's everybody. The pub needs a mic on them. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So, so at the moment, um, it, it's just about to go into a quiet period. But at the moment, I'm just I'm doing three. Th I've been doing three things. So these will be on in January. Um, so basically you won't get a, get away from what I've been up to in the last <laughs> sort of six months because, um, I've done, I did the last, well, the, the, I think there's 10 or 12 new sh Gladiator shows and I helped set it up with yeah. a guy called Ben Holland who's doing, you probably have heard of Ben, but he's, he did the first five shows and then I've done, um, the rest of the series, including all the finals and stuff. Mm. So that's for Gladiators and that's for BBC One. Um, also at the same time, I think Michael McIntyre's big show will be on and there's six of those shows again, but Ben's. Ben did one of them for me because again I couldn't couldn't be in all places at once. So I've done five of those, and they're they're typically the sort of thing you know music, taxis, yeah. pubs, hidden cameras, and then the final thing I've been involved in 
um, is the Masked Singer. I've had a, well, I've done every single Masked Singer since they that started up a couple of years ago. I think we're on series four now, um, and that's incredible. That people don't realise that the people in the masks uh, do all actually sing live. Although the tracks mm. are backing tracks, the actual singing uh, in the show is all all live inside the helmets, yeah. inside the, the masks. So there's quite a lot of process that goes on before we ever get to the studio about I get involvement in how these are all constructed and where we can place the mics in there so that they sound. Mm. They're all on IEMs and quite a lot of the construction of the the uh, costumes is all done with with um, you know, like cycle helmets really inside which they're all yeah. mounted on. So we've got some structure in there to, uh, to mount, you know, DPAs. And a big shout out, uh, talking about DPAs, a big shout out generally, um, I'm a big fan of the Omnimic for a lot of these LE shows. Um, all the presenters that I ever use have stick mics, but they're all Omni. People assume because mm. they've got a stick mic, a radio stick mic, they're all going to be um, cardioid. Mars Singer, you know, you'd think Joel Dermott's shouting into a, uh, a you know, a, a cardioid mic, but it, it's not the case. Because you don't need a windshield on an Omni, generally speaking. There's no, there's no horrendous bass tip-up. And also, it's much more forgiving with the presenters and stuff. The PA guys mm. can actually, once they're trained up, I've got some very good ones trained up, um, it's not an issue in terms of, you know, oh, you, you're not going to get the level, you, it's going to be more coloured. But that's not the case. The mic is so close, it might as well be a cardioid mic. But it's, you know, uh, so in terms of the Omni mic, inside the helmets, they're all on um, the TPA 406s and um, 406s. Mm. And um, they're Omni. Yeah, I've never had a good experience with the cardioid DPA. No, I don't think any, well, they do in the theatre and some people swear by them. And McIntyre swears by his one. But generally speaking, everything... All the panelists on um, uh, Masking, again, they're on DPAs, and you can take the head, take the windshields off if you put them in the mm. right place and you're in a studio. There's no reason why you, why not. So, yeah, I think, as I say, shout out for the old Omni mic because I think it's done a big disservice. People, as I say, naturally always go for a cardioid when they ought to think a bit more mm. about it. So, so I'd, I'd seen a couple of um, articles you've worked on about um, talking about immersive stuff, and I just wanted to sort of pick your brains a little bit about that before we get to the end of this well uh, i've still only got two ears last time i checked so at the end of the day <laughs> what we're hearing is all going to come down these two little clever little holes we have on the yeah. side of our head so um there's a lot of nonsense talked about it all but some of the best um best immersive is done using earbuds and headphones and stuff which directly mm. address that and that's using techniques which are you know the binaural techniques and dummy head techniques and all of that stuff is steeped in a lot of a lot of history about you know how you address your ear canals with stuff that's all around you and how convincing that is um and obviously uh if you're not doing it binaurally and you're not doing i mean apple are having a, a tremendous success with their immersive app and their immersive music service they're pretty much demanding now that classical music has to have a uh, a Dolby Atmos delivery, and obviously Dolby Atmos works incredibly well in the theatre and cinema. If you've got a rainstorm with some dialogue and stuff, and it's hammering down on a tin roof, you know you can't beat a Dolby Atmos theatre experience for that. Um, you've got flying a car that's going to fly over the top of you in a in a chase sequence. All of that stuff is works incredibly mm. well now the world cup were brilliant um nuno duarte who is the head of sound for the obs people took a very brave decision um to go for immersive 
audio for all of the uh, Olympics last time. And he, you know, that, that was obviously driven, the manufacturers are desperate for any of this, any immersive material that can be offered just for demonstration purposes, because that's going to be the next driver of, um, you know, kit selling kit. You're going to, be able to buy an immersive telly with immersive, you know, already mm. you can buy them with that moss and stuff in. But actually, immersive is going to be the, the, the next best thing, you know, for, from, from the manufacturer's point of view, for shifting kit and boxes and stuff. Um, mm. That, but that's you know that there is only a physical amount of room in your house for most people's houses to to cope with. I mean, how many people do you know they've got a five point one setup for their telly? How many people do you know have two speakers put very close to either side of their telly? So when you're sitting at the sofa, it might as well almost be mono. I had a fantastic. Yeah. I had a neighbour uh, in a house where I lived in uh, in Kent. He came in and uh, he said, "Oh, Rob, I bought a new five point one system for my lounge." I said, that's great. He said, come and have a listen. Come and have a listen. Sit down, tell me what you think. So I go into his lounge and he's got a nice big, you know, 60, 70, 75 inch telly, big old plasma. And underneath it is, is not a sound bar. He's got the amplifier under there. And he said, oh yes, my 5.1 amp. And then on top of it were arranged all the speakers just on, just in a little <laughs> rest on top. And I said, why have you got your speakers like that? He said, well, that's how it is in the shop. <laughs> So I said, you really need to spread oh. them around the room a bit. He said, no, no, we're quite happy with it. We're quite happy with it. So there's a sort of level in the, you know, of understanding about what all this immersive and 5.1 is in people's domestic. Mm. So it is a very, very small market. And obviously there is, there is a logo driven thing about, you know, this has got Dolby Atmos and, and they want, and, yeah. they, and they want, need the contact. I personally think there is a place for the immersive and, uh, and, I, and that is where people will be able to use metadata to control the audio that they're hearing so this and this will come from all those stems that get generated when you do a uhd football match as you know there's lots of stuff goes out and the same thing on eurovision we had a lot of stems we were able to generate and we did some tests with adm which is um the metadata sort of delivery format and it's now SADM which is S the serial version of that and that is where you're going to be able to use uh, your iPad for instance to control what you're hearing on the telly so I feel that the immersive side of it will actually become more metadata driven in as much as you'll be able to choose mm. like the like the the, uh, the commentator do you want him bang in the center or would you like him on sat next to you as if you were watching the game in the stadium but you've got your very learned friend sitting sitting on your right hand side or do you want yeah, him to yeah. be behind you like he's somebody that's talking behind you so for you to have control over where the commentary goes i can see as being a very useful um use of effectively mm. a, a multi-streaming platform where you can have control of some of these audio elements where you can be in the crowd you want to be in in other words if you're at man, man united or a Man City versus Man United game, you could choose whether you're an away fan or a home fan by the immersive yeah. audio. Where which 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 part of the crowd do you want to sit in? Do you want to sit with your mates from City, or do you want to sit with your mates from United? So again, the metadata will allow you to adjust the audio stream to give you that that experience. Um, we did. We, as I've, I say, uh, we did. I've had a, I've had a got, I was going to say I've had a play about with the Apple in the logic. renderer, um, the renderer. Yeah, yeah, and just to, uh, on the. Um, airpod pros and it's, it's pretty amazing 
for, yes. for the fact you're wearing headphones and you can you can move the commentator behind your head and it, it, doesn't, it doesn't feel perfect but it does give you that sense that they are behind you yeah yeah and I, as i say i think that's more the way immersive is going to be used i mean as i say i don't think many homes are going to be able to take full advantage of it cinemas and stuff are and, yeah. the, and the film world are going to carry on you know immersive more channels will be absolutely fine and i think the delivery um for the olympics and stuff you'll 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 be able to choose the commentary you know if you've got um if you've got different languages being spoken in your household you'll be able to choose your commentary to be chinese indian mm. swedish french whatever and that will be the yeah. interactive side of it and that will be where we'll be using a lot of these these streams that we can generate as i say on the uh, on eurovision um the salsa sound were involved as well um bbc r d took some they took a 5.1 mix because the show the the eurovision's take, mixed in 5.1 um with the down mix to, to stereo but there is there is a uh, a tv commentary effectively that sits over the top of the live show mm. uh, which is usually from the host language or so from from each country that's watching it they add their own host language um so we had um tv host if you like um which was graham norton um and then there was bbc radio 2 had ryland or whatever but they had a separate effectively um prez on top um there was also a liverpudlian Liver uh, bbc merseyside had their own liverpool commentary in their own dialect dialect um and so all of those were available along with some of the languages which were generated on site you know you could have had french whatever but but we, we just mm. stick with those three so you were on then able to switch using the serial metadata during the course of the live show you were able to switch between which of those three you heard now some of that has mm. happened in the past where you can you know sky did a thing where you could just listen to the effects or you can listen to the effects plus commentary but it would never have you been able yeah. to you can do i think F bbc5 live have done it a bit with some of their world cup games didn't they you could have the option of a radio 5 commentary and stuff but so all of that will become much more usual i think with um yeah. with with as i say immersive audio and I, as i say that it, it, it some of the immersive audio you, you just have to be careful about how you're mixing it and stuff on on the olympics mm. i mixed as, as, as i said to you that i mixed the um uh opening and closing ceremony the fireworks have their own layer really they're right on top of the roof so i could have four mics just dealing mm. producing the most fantastic firework effects um yeah but that has to somehow be reflected back in the base layer you know you, you your stereo which is mostly people stereo slash mono most people are gonna be hearing that so you can't just put that as a as an object which doesn't ever get down mixed yeah. back into your stereo so uh it's definitely you know you have to take a lot more care over how you're defining these sources and and also you need to turn up with a plan before you turn up as to say well mm. how are we going to treat it as i say i treat it like that like the stadiums are layers so you have a pitch layer you have a like a first yeah. layer and then you have a pa layer and then above, maybe above that there's a an overall stadium ambience maybe slash firework layer no it's, it's interesting with the uh the looking at it in layers because of sky i don't know if you know how sky's gone a bit more spot mics and things for the crowd effects and recently so they have uh two stereo pairs behind each goal pointing back at the crowd and yep. um two stereo pairs on each 18 yard camera now yeah and that sort of give you just give you the ability to sort of move things around and i'm i've sort of i've, I've recorded stems and played about with the using just the the sound field to create the the five one or if it's a, a sort of man city where it's put in the in the rafters 
make that the height because obviously that's yes. the highest set of microphones you've got there and then yeah, yeah. you'll play around the rest of it because you you are developing that sort of extra layer of uh, complexity to your mix then yes yeah I think it does. I think I, mean, I think Ian touched on this as well. I mean, it does detract to some extent to the, the, the hard ball kick sound, which is still is essentially mm. quite mono. But um, there is now telemetry in the ball, so it won't be long now before we can actually access and well, Salts have done it um, to uh, take take every time the ball is kicked. You won't need to have bikes to take the ball kick sound. You can take effectively a trigger. Um, which will mm. that you'll then trigger your sample so you can be much more like i mean it was when we first started all of this um uh games were in their infancy you know the ps3 was a twinkle in somebody's eye uh and then ea sports you know wanted sky to record all the ambiences from the ground which is mm. what we did for about two or three years as you know but the um the games world was going oh great we can hear the ball kicks oh great so then the ball kicks and all of that became part of the game play and mm. then the crowd and all of that and then, and then it's all being turned on his head because then all of a sudden the broadcaster's going well hang on a minute they've got some really the ball kicks are really in your face on this game and all of that you know the yeah. striving was to to then make sure that the real life reflected more what was expected by people that were of a game playing generation for football yeah, I quite like the middle ground now where you do hear the ball kicks, but they're not as... I think with having the immersive stuff, you do you do give that ability to yeah. fill the rest of it out pretty well. I suppose when it was in mono, you didn't have to worry about, you know, spill on, the, on your pitch mics from the crowd then. Going back to the salsa uh, comment about the uh, triggering the, f the effects, how does it know if it's hit the crossbar, which is by far the best sound Oh, you still, yeah, you still put, you still put a mic. We used to use contact mics. Do you oh, know that? On the, do you remember that? No, you no. Don't remember those days. We used to have contact no, no, mics on the, on the crossbar. So if you get listen to some of the early games right. Ian and I had, we made up and they were, they, they were, they were crystal mics because they were the cheapest cartridges we could get, which didn't require, they were high mm. impedance. We used to tape them to the, um, we tape one each side of the ups of the bar. And that was actually, because it was wood, it was obviously a great conductor. So there were contact mics. Yeah. Then specifically, one year, uh, the Premier League decided that they didn't want want to have them. And we were, we'd always have an argument because the referees would say, well, it could potentially influence whether it was a goal or not. Yeah. Um, so the, 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 but we were going to put, originally we were going to put seducers on there, but they looked too big. So we made them out of, map when Maplins was going, they were like one inch, they looked like matchboxes, as I say, and as a contact mic on there. And that, the first time that hit the cross, you know, the, the, the woodwork, it was a cracking noise. Which um, yeah, I can imagine that. <laughs> so maybe there's it, a... is, it is by far one of those. It's one of those things where you, when you get it right, you just see it sounds perfect. Yes, it's yeah. brilliant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's like the I, remember, I was mixing a match in the day once. Um, for uh, was it? I was it? Was it? Might have been even a match choice, and then I was watching it back on match of the day, and I don't know what they'd done, whether they would dubbed it with their own effects or something, but that wasn't on it, and I was absolutely gutted. I was like that sounded fantastic, and it's gone. I mean, that's why I love doing live shows because I know what I'm doing goes out. There's nothing worse than yeah. doing a show that's recorded, and then watching it three months later, and it's been through the hands of a dubbing mixer who hasn't understood the the what, what I was trying to do or why, you know, and. and De mm. deconstructing it all and rebuilding it and not in such a good way you know that's that's pretty soul destroying so that's one of the reasons yeah. i really do love doing a live show is, is is what you what i hear at home is what i sort of expect yeah brilliant right well i'll, I'll, I'll wrap it up there if that's uh all right with you it's been uh it's been great that it's some um, interesting stuff we've chatted about and it's nice to hear about people it's been you know obviously i've only been doing this like 15 years or something now working in tv so like I, I, going back to what you were saying about where, um, 
uh, doing a physics uh, physics in, uh, courses and things. There just seemed to be that uh, generation where that was the sort of in having an electronics background or a physics background with an interest in music. Whereas like, I, I feel like everybody who works in TV now, especially in sound, well, it, only in sound, is a failed musician or a failed, you know, wanted to work in a recording studio, which is, you know, which is pretty much me. <laughs> You'd be absolutely bored, Richard, at a recording studio. The thing about a recording studio oh, no, is it's so, it's so easy. They turn up every day, the microphones work, they plug them straight in, they plug them into a desk they know and love. The chat, it's just no challenge. You can make a great sound. Yeah, great. You get great musicians. That's great. All of those things, but where's the where's the where's the challenge in life? If you if that's but all too that, easy, that's why we work in television. No, that's the thing, and that you, so I look back, look back at it now and think, well, going. And, I, I obviously did a uh, music technology university degree, um, and that's how I got in. And it was like maybe five six years after I'd graduated before I ended up getting a job in TV, which I just sort of fell into it through a family friend, um, and so I've gone and you know, done it all right for myself in, in, in what I would say. Is relatively short space of time i think but um yeah it just feels like a lot of people now are either failed musicians or want to do that role but when you look back at sort of people from your generation it's more of an electronics background yeah i, I think yeah it's it, because people were either musicians or they were geeks you know there was you know like mm. abbey road was all people in white coats doing the recording really yeah, it was yeah. only fairly latterly that it became much more of a collaborative, I suppose, with the Beatles and stuff, with a much more where those boundaries started to come down. And um, yeah, I think I think a, sort of a knowledge of physics about where you can put a microphone is always good to have, you know, how far away you can put something or um, mm. there, there's a whole, yeah. There, there, I, as I say, I was lucky because, you know, I, I was sort of had the two things that I thought we needed and I've only ever wanted to do this job and I was very lucky to actually and have the determination, I suppose, to do the job. Yeah. You know, as I say, I get paid for doing my hobby. And who wouldn't want to, you know, for 50 years, I've just, you know, been doing my hobby. So I've not really worked a day in my life. I think that's quite a nice soundbite to end on there. Working in TV, if you do enjoy it, can feel sometimes like a hobby rather than a job. So, yeah. And thanks to Robert for joining me um, on the episode. I don't think we even scratched the surface with his uh, 50 years working in TV. We didn't really get into the technical side of it too too much either. So, um, yeah, I think we will we'll try and get Robert back if he'll join us and have another chat with him. If you are enjoying the podcast, you can go on to your podcasting apps and give it a rating. Maybe you want to give it a 10 from Len because that's me trying to segue into the next bit where I'm saying that on the next episode of Pushing Faders, I've got... Richard Silito and Andy Tapley from Strictly Come Dancing. So I hope you can join us for that one. It's going to be out next Friday, which coincides with the Strictly final. So finally, thanks to everybody who's listened and everybody I've spoken to, they've given a bit of feedback on the podcast and it tends to be quite positive, which is nice. Um, and if anybody wants to get in touch, recommend anybody to chat to, um, then please get please do so. There's a Instagram page, which is Pushing Faders Pod. And there is a Facebook page for the podcast. Um, but yeah, feel free to get in touch if you uh, want to recommend anybody to chat to. Until next week, bye-bye. <laughs>